it's beyond doubt. It's beyond conversation now. We're in a public safety crisis. You can't have a 40% increase of crime in two years and not call that a crisis. We've been working a lot on rehab. What's going on? Can you explain to us what's happening? There's been little impact to no impact from the money spent from rehabilitative dollars on rates of recidivism. That in of itself should scare you because there's likely billions of dollars being spent in California. So these are fully rehab-oriented projects that the state is paying for that are contracted. Who are these companies? How did they come to this industry? They started as the largest contractors for private prisons in the world. They've moved their infrastructure from the prison industrial complex or setting up shop in the rehabilitative industrial complex for profit. There's just too much money and influence wielded by these organizations and folks that likely have promises of employment post their retirement. My guest today is Douglas Eckenrod, retired deputy director of state parole. In California, we put a big emphasis on rehabilitation for inmates. But has this become an industry that's more focused on making money than helping the inmates rebuild their lives? Stay tuned for an insider's perspective. I'm Siamai Korami. Welcome to California Insider. Thank you for the invitation. We want to talk to you about a phenomenon that's happening in the state. The crime is going up. Meanwhile, we've been working a lot on rehab. We've been talking about rehabilitation, and we've probably spent a lot on this. What's going on? Can you explain to us what's happening? Yeah, it's, um, it's a tough topic because uh, we haven't been doing very well. Um, you know, as we've discussed before, <coughs> uh, homicide from 2019 to 2020 went up 31%. And um, the uh, Attorney General just released the 2021 crime statistics, and unfortunately, um, as we had discussed previously, we thought it might, might go up again, and it did, and went up another 9%. So homicide is up 40% since 2019. Now, when you talk about rehabilitation's impact on this, you know, we are the Division of Rehabilitative Programs, a division within CDCR, by itself is spending $500 million on rehabilitation. A year, a, right? A year. That doesn't capture all the other divisions' expenditures regarding rehabilitation or the physical infrastructure of institutions or locations where rehabilitative services are delivered. It's just really the contracting portion where we pay program providers to subcontract with more providers to provide services in the community or services in the institutions. So these are fully rehab-oriented projects that the state is paying for that are contractors? They're con subcontractors. Subcontractors. They're delivering the vast majority of the state-related don't forget there's counties that are doing the same things and of course the federal side is providing resources and then there's resources carved out of Social Security or Medicare or social services that are local. I mean there's in California literally there are billions of dollars being spent on this and in regards to the 500 million dollars of direct contracting money that's being spent. In 2018 um, the um, auditor for the state of California uh, produced a report that I'll try to quote the title of it. Um, they found no linkage. I think I've got the title wrong, but it's close. No linkage between the rehabilitative dollars spent and a decrease in recidivism. That's a pretty serious accusation. And the inspector general has produced reports that have also implied very similar outcomes that very, very little outcome from rehabilitation 
dollars being spent. Not lowering recidivism, which means high crime rates continue. And so what's the disconnect really is what I hear you asking. Now, in my career, I have interacted with hundreds of program providers, and I personally know some that have value. Rehabilitation, um, we have to have, have a reasonable expectation of what it can do. It's not for everybody. But there's a significant chunk of folks who can be reached. And I'm familiar with programs that have good outcomes, that have good efficacy, that track, track their outcomes over time, that segregate the folks that they deliver rehabilitative services to based on risk levels, which is a core component of success. And, and so what I know is I know that there are, there are folks who are doing it right. And, but to get to a zero impact, that means there are folks who are doing it worse than wrong. In other words, so making it worse. In other words, the behavioral science is settled on this issue. That if you deliver rehabilitative programming incorrectly, you increase the rate of recidivism. The best analogy I can make is this. You're a new CEO of a franchise. You've got 200 stores. You look at your quarterly report and you've got zero profit. You know that there's, there's 100 stores that are making money. That means the other 200 stores are losing you money. What's the first thing a CEO does to raise their quarterly profit? Well, you fire, the, you close the 100 stores that are making, not making you money. And you've got a positive outcome. If the California Department of Corrections truly audited themselves and looked at the outcomes of their program providers and just terminated the contracts of the ones that are injuring, that are increasing the likelihood of, of offending, and I get into why that's the case, you would get immediate improvement in recidivism, immediately, without spending more money. Actually, it would, it would save you money. You would just cut the ones that are causing problems and, and rehabilitation would get a bump. Recidivism would get a bump down. And over time, that turns into reduced violence, homicide, rape, assault, robbery. But one thing that's important, that I, I, I wouldn't want your viewers to not think about this idea. In my opinion, it's beyond doubt, it's beyond conversation now, we're in a public safety crisis. You can't have a 40% increase of crime in two years and not call that a crisis. You've got to go back to, you know, the, this is the most precipitous increase in crime between 2019 and 2020. On record, we haven't had that, that rate of increase in homicide, and you got to go back to, you know, beyond a decade for the rate, the rate of increase between 20 and 21. So this is, we're, we're, we agree we're in a crisis. But the analogy is, you know, it's, if I have a, a cardiac event and I go to the emergency room, and um, they pull blood, and they're looking at my blood pressure, my O2 rate, and, and um, the doctor comes in and he starts talking to me about diet. I'm having a heart attack, but he's talking to me about diet, and he brings in a Peloton exercise machine. And um, we're talking about long-term outcomes, yeah. right? We're talking about an investment to keep me from having cardiac disease. I'm in crisis right now. I'm having a heart attack right now, what do I do? So that, you know, how it relates to the criminal justice system is we have 2,000 less law enforcement personnel this year than we did two years ago. Um, 
It's a pretty significant loss. You've got about 77,000 personnel, you lose 2,000. And you've released early tens of thousands of prisoners. DAs have fought successfully for no bail. Jails are impacted, no vacancy. And we're surprised by the crime rates. And so rehabilitation investments are They've been used as an excuse for much of the early release. Hey, let's do the proper investment into local community services and it pays a dividend downrange. Let's prevent people from committing crimes, teach them a new way. Well, I think those things work for some folks, but we didn't do it correctly. We're not tracking any outcomes. The department can't tell you what programs are, are, are functioning and not. And so we're bearing the fruit of these mistakes. Can you explain to us how some of these programs can be hurting? You mentioned some of them are yeah. making things worse. Right. Can you explain how it looks like? Why would they make things worse? Sure. So there's a, uh, there's a good body of evidence, uh, much of it led by the work of, um, of a professor um, by the name of Ed Latessa, who was, um, I think, working for the University of Ohio. and. Um, uh, he was a recognized uh, expert in risk assessment tools. And so as you might imagine, um, not only do static factors like your age and your education, marital status, job history, things like this have an impact on long-term outcomes of criminality, but there's dynamic factors in there too, what you've been exposed to, what programming you get. And so your risk level can kind of move up and down based on, on what has been delivered to you. And what we know um, without dispute is that if you program low-risk offenders with high-risk offenders, the low-risk offenders begin to behave like the high-risk offenders. There's a social hierarchy that we've all experienced in the classroom when we were kids. And uh, bad kids can have an influence on the good kids. Similar kind of thought process behind programming low-risk offenders with high-risk offenders. And because uh, the corporations that are the recipients of much of the subcontracting dollars to deliver services that are for-profit, exchanged on the New York Stock Exchange, there's a stock price right now about nine bucks for the two major ones, nine dollars a share for the two major ones that produce a lot of services in the, in, in the United States, but they're all both multinational as well. Um, to lower their costs, they just get the biggest classroom possible, stuff people in there, and have just deliver non-specific programming to a huge classroom of offenders of multiple risks. The analogy here is more of a medical analogy. Um, I go to the pharmacy and I'm just given a prescription. Not a prescription for me. I had heart disease. If I'm lucky, one out of 10 chance I get something that might be related to heart disease, but if I'm randomly giving you generic um, treatment for your problem, then we shouldn't be surprised if you continue to be ill. And, and that's really prob probably the best way to think of rehabilitative services is if I target the right um, service for the right duration to the right person for the right need, success rates go up. I do any of those things wrong, and I run the risk of increasing the recidivism rate. And that's what I think, well, that's what I know is happening. So we're putting all this together and they're learning, I mean, I, or they're getting impacted. So the ones that have low risk, they're getting impacted by the high risk right. ones. Think about the cost to deliver it. 
that means I might have to run two classrooms versus one. What's that do to your profit? These are companies that ultimately are subcontracting with other folks, but they're publicly traded. Who are these companies? How do they come to this industry? It's a great question, man. This is really fascinating. Um, the two big players in the United States, and I won't share their names, but it wouldn't be very difficult for folks to, to research it on their own. Uh, they started as the largest uh, uh, contractors for private prisons in the world. They're multinational corporations that house folks. They've been in contracts with the federal government, with California, with a bunch of states with their private prisons. You would be familiar with their names. As states have been moving away from, and the federal government has been moving away from the utilization of private prisons, you saw their stock price come down. They reinvented themselves. They must have hired some focus groups because they took corrections out of their names and they moved to things that incorporate fuzzy feelings like care into their names. And um, so I would have loved to have been involved with their focus group on their naming convention. And you saw their stock price start going back up because they've moved their infrastructure from the prison industrial complex. And they're now they're moving their infrastructure and setting up shop in the rehabilitative industrial complex for profit. Now I could, I could live with this idea um, if they had outcomes that resulted in better public safety but they refuse to measure their outcomes. And the state of California, in my opinion, at least at the state level, is complicit in this because I can tell you for certain that every database, every piece of data that is necessary to track the outcomes and the viability down to the program level exists. But there's been an intense amount of resistance to putting that data together because you can't hold people accountable if the data doesn't exist. Why is the state not doing that if the data already exists? Right. Well, these folks are extremely influential in politics across the state. These are huge corporations with a, that wield a lot of power and the contracting dollars are in the hundreds of millions. And so uh, it would be quite a fly in their ointment to, um, to self-assess and produce a report that was so damning of themselves. And so they're going to use every resource necessary, every avenue, every connection necessary to prevent it. And um, I would argue further that uh, the Department of Corrections, an organization that I, am, I have served well and uh, has done a tremendous amount of good, is incapable of, uh, of tracking these outcomes. You know, the Attorney General, or I'm sorry, the Inspector General has produced reports um, many times over the last decade that has called for more outcome measures to happen, demanded it. It just doesn't happen. And so um, thankful for the opportunity to talk to you about it because we've got to highlight this outcome problem if we're going to make any, any progress in the rehabilitative area. But we also have to recognize that um, defunding efforts and the assaults on police, that's, we've got to unwind that because that's what gets us out of cardiac heart attack mode rehabilitation helps is a component of some solutions for, for longer range. So are you saying that these programs have no impact right now with the money that we're spending? I'll, I'll, I'll tighten up my answer a little bit. The auditor for the state of California and the inspector general's office have indicated in a generic sense that there's been little impact to no impact 
from the money spent from rehabilitative dollars on rates of recidivism. That in and of itself should scare you because there's likely billions of dollars being spent in California outside of the Department of Rehabilitative Programs. But the scariest part of the answer I'm going to give you is we should know the impact to recidivism by program. All the data exists to do it. It's been a willful decision by the California Department of Corrections and state government to not track it down to that level. There's about 500 program delivery vehicles under the DRP contracting umbrella. But we know who the offenders are, we know what their risk levels are, we know what their static and dynamic factors are, we know what they've been, what's been delivered to them by who and where. So, and then we, we also have criminal arrest histories moving forward. Uh, it would not take much to link that data together. And it has been proposed, if not dozens, if not hundreds of times to anybody who would listen. And there's been a willful decision. We do not want to know uh, the answer down to the program level. And that's a crime. So the rate of recidivism needs to go down if these programs are working, right? Right. And the risk here is, is twofold. Um, there are folks um, that come down heavily on the crime suppression end of this who look at this data and could overreact and say there's no value of rehabilitation, scrap the whole thing. And, and, and I don't want that to be the message. There is a band of value in re rehabilitation for the right folks if delivered the right programming. The solution to our homicide by the crime um, problem is refunding the police, stop attacking them, provide them the tools and the moral support to do their jobs. The long-term benefit is a targeted investment for the folks who are receptive to programming. That can have a difference, but it's a balance between these things. And, and right now we're, we're, we're using the excuse of rehabilitation as lip service to reduce, to dump out tens of thousands of offenders to programs that either aren't there or just don't work. So essentially, from what it looks like, this money that the private prisons, the, these companies that were making money from private prisons, they're actually making the money from rehab now. Yes. But they're bundling people together and essentially not really adding a lot of value by putting these different types of people together that could even make the situation worse, right? And I'll emphasize the last thing you said. By doing that, it is, it is equally counteracting the positive that's being done. They're hurting outcomes at nearly the rate that good program providers are delivering good outcomes. And all you'd have to do is just get rid of this part of the equation and uh, you, would, you would see uh, some improvement over time. Um, Why are we not getting rid of this? I, I think there's just too much money and influence uh, wielded by these organizations and folks that likely have promises of employment post their retirement. So the government team members, people that are working in the government entities, they get a promise to work in these, in these companies after they retire, right? Well, well, I can't speak to the conversations that they've had privately, but I find it ironic that uh, um, exactly one year uh, post-retirement, because there's some laws in regards to uh, um, who you can work for post-retirement if you had control over contracts. So, you know, 12 months in a day, uh, post-retirement, poof, they're hired by the very folks that they were, uh, had oversight of contracting with. Uh, not not too much earlier, and that is very common in state government, not just in corrections, but in state government altogether. And so it 
you know, this, this uh, cross-section of major corporations and um, former state executives is a disaster for California. There's another uh, question I had from you about prisoners. We, we are hearing that it's very tough for them to, to find a job after if you commit certain felonies. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not easy for people to get out there and get a job. Is that true? You know, um, there are certain jobs that a felon just can't get. Um, some of them make a whole lot of sense. Uh, there'd be jobs um, in some financial sectors or in law enforcement or some places that uh, uh, control medicine. I mean, there are jobs that make sense when someone's got a specific type of criminal history that um, they're excluded from participating. Um, it's, it's definitely an impediment for folks returning to the community. However, um, you look at the job market now, and uh, there are there is probably in, in some sense entry level jobs are um, everywhere. You know you're seeing help wanted all over the place, and the stigma associated with being a felon um, certainly has been reduced. There are some risks associated with that, though, for society at large. Uh, anything that you destigmatize, you th this is cross issue. Almost anything that you destigmatize, you get more of. You think about critical issues that we've talked about for years, as you destigmatize them, you get more. Um, and so I am concerned about the way that we're approaching uh, stigma and crime. And we want this to be something that is rejected, crime to be rejected by society at large. So they opt out of it. That is a reason to opt out. And then the folks who, who opt in, we've got to find a way to lead them back to the rest of us to reject further criminality. Now you mentioned these companies and it seems like the talk of rehab is something that a lot of people are interested in the mm -hmm. criminal justice system in California and we hear about it, hear about it. It looks like the special interests have found their way in yep. and it doesn't seem like they're helping much. How long has this been going on with these companies coming in? And You, you know, I um, became aware of um, this relationship probably around 2014. I, I know it's been going on for much longer than that, but I, I became uh, distinctly aware of the incestuous relationship between state government and these organizations through their hiring practices. If you look at the, f the number of former CDCR executives or former county executives who've been hired to be on the board of directors, or in senior management positions for these corporations. Uh, it's startling. They're not hired because of their expertise about rehabilitation. They're hired because of the access they still have to the department and ultimately to departmental dollars. And again, the Department of Rehabilitative Programs alone controls r r roughly about $500 million worth of rehabilitative funding. It's quite a juicy pot to go after. And so, of course, you would attempt to co-opt people who may have um, somebody's phone number they need to have in their phone that will pick up the phone for them. So they found a way to actually hire people from inside the government yes. and build these relationships. Yes. Now, the cost per inmate in California has significantly, has been on the rise, right? It's yes. Is it over 100K now, $100,000 per year? You know, if, it, if it's not there, it's very close. And. Is this part of the cost? Does the rehab cost get 
Yes. Calculated it in. It gets aggregated back into there. All of every single function we debate or talk about in regards to the prison system has a financial cost associated with it, and that's worked out to the penny. So, uh, you know, if you begin to aggregate 500 million over uh, the amount of folks that are on parole or the folks that are on, that are in custody, uh, it's a considerable amount of money per individual per year. And, and that's, that's the money that these folks are fighting for. There are a lot of people that argue, why, why should we send people to prison while we can send them to a really good university yeah. to get a good degree and they can be productive for the society. But it looks like some of this cost, I mean, it's some of this cost is actually getting spent on the rehab, yep. which is not really productive, right? Is that what? Right. Um, if we talk, if I can unwind just for a second, because I think a component of what you're talking about really centers about the public's perception about what is uh, recidivism. So a recidivism is a measurement of the frequency that somebody commits a felony within a certain amount of time post-release from prison or jail. And when we talk about recidivism rates or 50 or 60 percent, these are these are numbers that are not good. And so when you talk about hey. This concept of could we could we divert money to to a college and and uh, and save ourselves money in the long term? Uh, that would be wonderful. I would support that 100% if it worked, but it just doesn't work. One of the things that's lost when we track recidivism rates is the duration that somebody spent in prison. There are folks who recidivate 10 times in 10 years. Wow. There are folks who recidivate multiple times in one year because they just keep getting released. Their impact to recidivism as a number is kind of lost because someone does 10 years and then goes out and recidivates shortly after their release. Their, the recidivism rate looks the same, right? They both recidivated yeah. 100%, except one person victimized 20 people in this period of time or 100 people in this period of time and the other person victimized one. So what can't get lost is, is when you look back at numbers, um, numbers are critical. When the Attorney General released his homicide report um, a few weeks ago, I actually felt bad for him because the outcomes are so bad, uh, but yet, yet his relationship to, to Sacramento leadership puts him in a tenuous position. And so when he reported the increase of homicides, he couched in his statement that uh, the homicide rate still is considerably lower than our historic highs. So you read this statement and it's up a little bit, but well, it's much better than it's been. He had to go back to 1993 to find a rate of homicide that's greater than today's. So it's almost 30 years. But it's interesting if you look at the timing of, of, um, of the st three strikes law, um, I think it was 1996 or thereabouts, you see the most precipitous decline in homicide on record. All you've got to do is look back at the homicide rate per capita and it just right after three strikes, poof. And a lot of prison building went on there. Nobody recognizes the fact that we were locking up the right folks. The reason that the homicide rate went from, you know, 12.9, 13.0 per 100,000, all the way down to one of the best lows we've had um, uh, in 2019, which is 4.2 per 100,000, huge reduction was because of three strikes. And 
um, what folks have been doing since AB 109 is attempting to chip away at these, these, the infrastructure that we built that, that pay dividends in reducing crime. And then now it's catching up to us and now we're seeing the spike. We've literally had the most precipitous increase on record since we've been keeping records about homicide between 2019 and 2020. So clearly we're doing something wrong. And we've had one of the largest increases between 2020 and 2021. So locking folks up, when we identify the right folks and keep them in custody longer, there is a dividend for the public. We just gotta be more skillful at identifying the folks who can benefit from rehabilitative programming. And then when we identify them, actually deliver it correctly. Otherwise, we're doing them a disservice as well as the public. Do you have any other thoughts for our audience? If I could, if I could manifest one thing into reality, is we need to have an outcome measure for each program in regards to uh, recidivism and criminal justice related outcomes. Programs need to be held accountable. The ones that are producing, let's reinvest, give them more money. Let's use them as a model. The ones that aren't producing, that are there for the wrong reasons, gigantic classrooms delivering generic information to 50 people of various risk, fire them immediately. Let's reward the folks who are really committed to rehabilitation, and I know quite a few of them personally. Let's invest more into them. Let's, let's shift the, uh, the funding away from the ones that are doing bad. And also we've got to recognize that rehabilitation, although it has value, is not the solution for the crime crisis. Defunding and lowering numbers of police and the inability to book them into county jail um, or keep them in prison that's what's driving crime numbers. So we've got two problems going on at the same time. And I do believe California is dynamic enough to handle both if we just have the right leadership that can, that can recognize it. Douglas Eckenrod, retired deputy director at the State Parole. It was great to have you on California Insider. Thank you for having me back. We want to ask you to sign up to our California Insider email list. You will receive exclusive updates on our upcoming documentary and get the latest inside stories on everything that's happening in California. Go to InsiderCA.com and sign up 